Yeah, so uh, uh, Pastor Billy forgot to read the verses, but fear not, <clears throat> I've brought my Bible today. So uh, <clears throat> we'll read these together in, in a moment. <clears throat> and I appreciate your prayers. I, I was down this week um, uh, under the weather, and uh, um, I don't believe I'm contagious anymore, but uh, uh, still feel like I got a, a little bit of a, a lung uh, tied behind my back. So I would appreciate your prayers that um, the Lord would give me the strength and clarity of thought uh, for this message, <clears throat> which is entitled, The Heart of Man. And our text is John chapter 20. We're going to just look at uh, a couple verses. We're going to look at verses, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, not John 20, John 2. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. But first, I just want to kind of share a little bit about the structure of the book of John with you. Um, John organizes the first half of his gospel around seven signs of Jesus. Um, the, sign, the, word, the word sign in Greek is the same for miracle. So these were seven big miracles that John uh, remembered and really kind of organized the first half of his gospel around. And so the first of these signs is uh, one, the one we looked at uh, just two weeks ago, that would be the turning of, of water into wine at Cana in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then we see in John chapter 4, the healing of the official's son at Capernaum. And then in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is the fourth sign. And that's in John chapter 6. And then uh, walking on water, Christ's uh, power over the elements that we see there uh, in, um, in John chapter 6, 16 through 21. In John chapter 9, we see his power over death and the healing of the man born, I'm sorry, his, his power of, of recreation of the eyes, the, the healing of the man born blind. And then in John chapter 7 or 11, we see his power over death, raising Lazarus from the dead. So John wants us to understand who Jesus is, that, that he is the very Son of God. He has divine power. Um, John does not claim, by the way, that these are the only miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, quite the opposite. At the very end of John, in John chapter 20, verse 30, uh, John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And later he says, if, if everything that Jesus did was was, was written down. Um, I don't believe the world could hold the books. Okay, so Jesus, John saw a lot of stuff, but these are seven signs that he remembers and that he records um, for us to learn more about Jesus's divinity and, and power. And so even though Jesus did not answer the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders who were questioning him and uh, who were full of unbelief, with a miracle uh, that we saw in the last sermon after he had cleaned out the, the temple. Um, uh, they had demanded a sign, and Jesus said, I, I, if you want a sign, I'll, I'll give you a sign. Uh, destroy this temple in three days, and I'll rise it up. That was really his greatest miracle, his resurrection that he prophesied, but he didn't actually show them a sign at that moment, okay? We, we recognize from our text this morning that he actually did go on and perform some miracles or, or signs at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And John doesn't tell us specifically what those were. He, uh, we don't know if they were miracles of healing or what all they were, but they were clear miracles. And so pick up the text with me, if you would, at, at verse uh, 23. 
John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Um, we, we, we also see here in the next uh, couple of verses in, in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus mentions the signs. So he was clearly doing more signs here. And, and, uh, and, and the people noticed these signs. In fact, the text is going to say here that many believed in his name. And Jesus' response that you're going to see here may be a little bit surprising to you because we read in verse 24 that though many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Well, that, that begs the question, which is the title of this sermon, what is in the heart of man? Now, let me, let me just qualify this um, question. We talk about heart. I'm not talking about the actual organ that, that pumps blood. I'm talking about the inner core or the inner self of man. All right? And when we talk about man, I'm not talking about the male species here. I'm talking about homo sapiens. Okay, so ladies, I'm not uh, leaving you out. Um, when, when, when I ask the question, what is in the heart of man, um, I'm thinking, what is in the heart of both men and women? Okay, some of you may be thinking, I know what's in the heart of man. Um, and we're going to get to that, depravity. But actually, uh, all humanity what is in the heart of mankind? And within the context of our text, we see that fickleness is in the heart of man. That's our first point this morning. Fickleness is in the heart of man. Pastor John Piper says that this passage, quote, has an unsettling effect. <clears throat> what it says, in essence, is that Jesus knows what is in every heart, and so he can see when someone believes in a way that is not really believing. In other words, Jesus' ability to know every heart perfectly leads to the unsettling truth that some belief is not the kind of belief that obtains fellowship with Jesus and eternal life. Some belief is not saving belief, end quote. There is a false faith that looks like belief that we need to be warned about. Some might call that a, a a belief with the mind, but not the heart. Someone has said that the, the longest distance in the human anatomy is often between the head and the heart. And so we need to check ourselves, and we need to examine ourselves. What kind of belief do we have? Is it, is it true saving faith in Christ alone? Or is it the kind of belief that we see here in this, in this text that goes after signs but doesn't last? The kind of false faith or false belief that doesn't follow through storms. Pastor John Calvin calls this belief that is based on miracles but doesn't last, he calls it a shadow of faith. He writes, let us know that there is a kind of faith which is perceived by the understanding, that is the mind only, and afterwards quickly disappears because it is not fixed in the heart. And that is the faith which James calls dead, but true faith always depends on the spirit of regeneration. We might call this a fair-weather faith, 
You've heard of fair weather fans, right? Those of you who follow sports, maybe you know people who are far weather fan, fair weather fans. Maybe you've been a fair weather fan. Um, I had the opportunity right out of college to spend a, a year being mentored by Bob Tebow back when his famous son, Tim Tebow, was just a little guy. We all called him Timmy. Um, and, and actually, his, fa- his family members still call him Timmy. Um, but, but I remember back later when we were overseas in, in Afghanistan, and uh, Timmy had grown up to be a, you know, a, big, a big Timmy, all right, and, and was a gator, Florida gator. And, and so I remember coming back, and, and uh, we, we, on a furlough, drove through Jacksonville and sat down and had breakfast with um, Bob and Pam Tebow. And he was, he was telling me that he warned Tim that the same people who are building you up right now will tear you down tomorrow. So, so don't get too excited or don't believe the fanfare. Uh, they will turn on you. They will tear you down. And, and Jesus knew to beware fair-weather fans. Sure, they would build him up today, but these were miracle chasers. And when, when you disappoint their expectations tomorrow, they're going to turn on you. Jesus knew that. And while we can certainly learn from this that we shouldn't put too much confidence from wherever we sit in man, all right? And again, some of you ladies are like, yep, that's for sure. Um, but we should not put too much confidence in man, because if we do, we will be disappointed. This text warrants a deeper look in our own heart to make sure that we are not going to be agents of disappointment to God or to others, that our faith is real. Uh, so what kind of faith do you have? Is, is it the faith, the faith of the feasters, intrigued by Jesus maybe? Um, uh, desiring to, to get something from him, but temporary? Is it faith that is fair weather, fickle, and ultimately false, the, that of the feasters? Or is it the faith of his disciples, those who followed him? It's certainly not a perfect faith. That's one of the things I appreciate. Uh, as we read through the Gospels about Jesus' disciples, I appreciate the fact that, that they weren't perfect because neither am I. They, they were sinners. They, they were, they, sometimes they didn't have a clue like me. Um, sometimes they weren't you know, sure what's going on here. What are you doing, God? And yet they kept following. It was an enduring faith, the faith of a disciple. Well, John wrote his Gospel so that we might truly believe in Jesus. He wanted to make sure that our faith wasn't fickle, but that it was, it was a true faith that follows Christ. And so we see at the very beginning of his, of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we see that right at the beginning. And right at the end, in John chapter 20, verse 31, I say right at the end, towards the end, it's like it was like the closing, and then John got a little more inspiration to write another chapter, right? Um, but in, in John 20, 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's John's goal here. He wants you to believe in Christ with an enduring faith that is not fickle, like these folks who are at the feast, who were intrigued by the, the flashbang wonders, the things that Jesus might be able to do for them but we're not intent on following. God doesn't want you 
brothers and sisters to have a fickle faith. He wants it to be genuine, deep, and lasting. But fickleness is not the only thing in the heart of man. When we, when we look wider at the context of the entire Bible, we see that depravity is in the heart of man, right? That's our second point this morning. Depravity is in the heart of man. And I'll tell you somebody who understood depravity um, was Bob Tebow. Um, I, you know, it, when I was being mentored by him, he, he had very much a kind of a coach um, uh, form of leadership, right? And, and so he, he liked to call people sorry carcasses. And, and so, you know, I'd, I'd be like, hey, you know, you, you know that, that Bart guy, he's a good guy. And Tebow would say, no, he's not. He's a sorry carcass. He's totally depraved. And I'd be like, well, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of depressing. Um, maybe, maybe, um, you've seen the, maybe you've seen the, the Babylon Bee um, um, a parody on the bad Santa. I think Billy sent it to me at Christmas time, right? You got, you know, this bad Santa sitting there and the kids on his lap and, and, uh, and, and the kid says, you know, I've been a good boy. And he says, no, you haven't. You're totally depraved, you wretch. You know, and, and so Santa just kind of gets badder and meaner, and you're like, oh, this is terrible, this Calvinistic stuff, you know? Uh, it, was a, it was called a bad Calvinist Santa, I think, you know? Uh, but let me tell you, I, I'm actually a Calvinist, but I would consider myself an optimistic Calvinist, all right? Because I am optimistic about the work that God is going to do in people's lives. When I go out and I share the gospel with somebody, I'm optimistic that, yes, God has elected them and is going to use the power of His Word uh, to draw them to faith, all right, and actually that gives me great optimism and reason to go out there and, and share. But the Bible says that, that man's nature is totally depraved. You may say, well, that's bad news. I don't like thinking about that. Um, um, but to, to, if you're going to understand the good news of the gospel, you've got to understand the bad news. Otherwise, we might all be a bunch of universalists. You know, let's just come and, and, and get happy together because uh, all paths lead to the sea. Everybody's all right. But you can't be a Christian and, and take Jesus seriously without believing that, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way, because that's what He said. Jesus Himself said that. But the Bible teaches us that, that we human beings, male or female, uh, are all totally depraved. That means that, uh, that, that our every facet of our being is fallen, right? That means our will is fallen. Our body is fallen and is therefore suffering the effects of sin and is decaying uh, the longer we live, right? Uh, and even our mind is fallen. And there, there are Christians out there that want to say, yes, the mind is fallen or that the will is fallen, right? The volitional will is fallen, is sinful, but the mind is still clean and pure. Uh, the truth is every aspect, every facet is fallen. And this is the opposite of our culture's view that mankind is basically good. Now, this does not mean that everyone is as evil as they possibly could be. There was certainly a difference in the life between Hitler and Gandhi. Okay, so total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be because, as I think as Indiana Jones likes to say, uh, it could be worse or it is worse. I think someone said it could be worse, and he says it is worse, and that's when the rats come in or whatever, right? Um, the truth is, we could be worse. We could be worse, but every facet of our, of our being is fallen, and that means our affections are fallen. We, we do not seek after God left to ourselves. 
The, the Baptist faith and message explains this in section 3, which is about mankind. Uh, it states, by his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined toward sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Now, Martin, Martin Luther wrote a famous uh, book called On the Bondage of the Will. His friend, his academic friend Erasmus, had written a book called On the Freedom of the Will, arguing that man's will is free. And Luther wrote a response called On the Bondage of the Will. And what Luther basically said was, uh, you're right, Erasmus. Uh, you have to get through the first 20 or 30 pages with a lot of explicit language uh, in which Luther is just deriding Erasmus for his work. I'm like, man, these guys were brutal to each other. But they were friends, believe it or not. He says, um, but he basically, what he says is, you are right, Erasmus. You have, you have the freedom to make any possible sinful decision you possibly can, apart from God's grace. Um, uh, the Bible does talk about free will, but we need to understand that this is not a libertarian freedom. This is a freedom of inclination. All right, now what does that mean exactly? Okay, let's say you go to Baskin Robbins, and there are what, 51 flavors? Do I got that right? How many? 31? How many do we have in Niceville? What's wrong with Baskin Robbins and Niceville? Is it going down? It's going downhill. Oh no, I'm not supposed to give like product. Uh, advertisements or, or whatever, but um, endorsements here. But, but all right, let's just imagine 51 flavors. Can you choose any one? You say yes. I'm going to say the answer is no. From their side, they're offering you any flavor, but you are governed by your inclinations. You have a firewall on. I'll tell you this. I will never, unless someone had um, external pressure like a gun to my head, I will never order cotton candy ice cream. All right, I will order something like Rocky Road or maybe just chocolate if I'm feeling a little more boring. Uh, or I may go for a sorbet if I'm feeling a little, you know, been hanging out with my wife a little bit, getting a little bit of that good cultured influence. Um, but I'm not going to go for There's a bunch of them that I'll never choose. Why? Because I'm governed by my inclinations. Does that make sense? And for the unbeliever, for the, the, any person born into this world without the Holy Spirit's illumination on us, we are inclined, every one of us, towards sin. None of us are inclined towards God because we want to be God. We want to be the master of our own ship, captain of our own ship, master of our own fate, right? And so sin, sin governs who we are. And so does that mean everyone is as bad as they possibly could be? No. Some people do some very altruistic, kind-hearted things. But if it's not for God's glory, right, and it can't be for God's glory apart from a relationship with Him, ultimately it's about me. Uh, either feeling better about myself or, hey, I hope somebody notices this, right? It's going to be selfish or it will be mired by that sinful inclination. And so all of our will, mind, and body has been affected by sin. Now let's look at some scripture here. Um, make sure that I'm not just kind of telling you my own philosophy. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah encounters the holiness of God. And you know, a lot of times, uh, the reason I think we struggle with the doctrine of total depravity is maybe we're looking out at other people, and we think, you know, compared to the aggregate average of human righteousness, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm not as bad as that person or that person, 
in the law of averages, I'm pretty good. We're pretty good culturally compared to, you know, uh, these folks over here. But when we stand up against a holy God, we recognize how we fall short. And we recognize the truth of our sin. And that's what we see pictured in Isaiah chapter 6. He stands, he, he actually is given a vision of the very throne room of God. He sees God in all of his holiness and majesty. And his response is, and this is a prophet speaking, okay? Um, this is somebody who was above the, the, the averages in his culture. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So no one had to tell him he was, he was impure and admired and tainted by sin. He, he saw a vision of God himself, and he knew and he cried out. What we see in, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, a statement, a question about the heart of man. And the prophet writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's actually a a mystery that comes along with with wickedness. And sometimes we don't understand the depravity of our own hearts. We we wish it wasn't there. Um, we, We resist, we fight against it. But those sinful inclinations that are there sometimes are just mysterious. Who can understand it? When you get into the New Testament... Romans is a great expose on the heart of man and that of total depravity. Romans chapter 1 describes the heart of man. And in verse 18, we we see that mankind rejects God for unrighteous reasons. Not because of an honest, at the end of the day, not because of an an honest um, perplexity about, let's say, why God could be good and allow for evil in this world. Now, people struggle with that. But ultimately, people reject God for unrighteous reasons. Basically, man wants to be God. I spent about a a decade in uh, conversation with a a dear friend of mine who recently was saved, and I shared this with you. Mike thought he was saved. I thought he was saved back in the 90s. And then Mike got into a, 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 it went on a downward spiral in which he was struggling with how can God really be good and totally meticulously sovereign at the same time and all of this suffering and wickedness exist, okay? And and man, we had late night discussions, um, arguments. He got more and more angry as the years went by and bitter in his heart. And after the Lord saved him, um, looking back, he said, that wasn't an honest question I had. He said, looking back, that was wickedness in my heart. I was angry at God. And that that was what I noticed. I used to tell him, Mike, you seem to be pretty upset with someone you don't believe exists. So we see here that mankind rejects God for unrighteous reasons, wicked reasons, wicked motivations, wicked inclinations of the heart. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of man... I'm sorry, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, God is sending them all of this revelation about himself, and the fact that they are suppressing that, it's unrighteous. Verse 21 through 23 of Romans chapter 1 shows how the rejection of God 
has led mankind to idolatry. Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Of course, um, the the discipline and science of archaeology is a lot of that is uncovering and uh, all these images that people would worship, right? And idols, and we put them in museums uh, to look at and say this shows us all about their culture, whether it's Mesoamerican culture or Egyptian culture. Just there, there are all these idols, right? You can go today to India and enter any good Hindu's home, and you will see a shelf of of what they call idols. Their idol shelf of their gods that they bow down to. And yet, we sophisticated Westerners have plenty of false gods as well and idols in our lives, do we not? Um, Maybe they are not images that we bow down to, but maybe it's a car in the driveway. Or uh, maybe it's the house we live in. Or maybe it's the concept of the perfect relationship, a a lifestyle we're we're seeking to to follow. Uh, Anything that we put in place of God where we try to find our heart satisfaction. And we're going to get into that later at the conclusion of this message. Well, verse 24 through 25 demonstrates that man's idolatry leads to impurity of heart and action. Verse 24 says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we see here that idolatry leads to impurity. Now, now we've we got to be a little careful here. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, but, but we Christians tend to sometimes rank sin. And the way we rank is oftentimes culturally influenced, maybe more than biblically influenced, okay? Uh, I appreciate what C.S. Lewis has to say here. Um, so, so what that means is we Christians sometimes will indulge in impurity of the heart, but we might criticize others and say, look at that um, sexual impurity. I'm so righteous, okay? Well, here's what, here's what Clive Lewis had to say about this. Um, about impurity, i.e. sexual sin versus other lesser sins that we might indulge in like pride or slander or malice. Here's what he says, quote, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. So he goes on to say that there are two things that we must overcome. The first, he says, is the animal self, and the second is the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, end quote. So just, you may disagree with that. You may be like, "Uh, I don't know about that. But but 
just know that you've been influenced by your culture more than you realize, right? What's the remedy to that? Read the Bible. Read the Word of God. What does he say about falsely judging others and, and, and putting others down and trying to elevate ourselves over others? Or self-dependence instead of God-dependence. Uh, th- those are significant, um, uh, that, that is significant impurity of heart and action in God's eyes. And so let us all be humble before the Lord. As we read Romans, we see very clearly that all people suffer from total depravity. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 says, all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Some of you are looking at me like I'm bad Santa here, um, trying to ruin everybody's day. But there is the bad news of the gospel that we have to recognize in order for us to uh, embrace and rejoice with the good news of the gospel. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Romans 3, 23 just sums it all up and says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, he's looking at their past and he says, and he's talking to Christians here, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked. Notice that word dead. You, You were dead. He doesn't say, okay, you were drowning in a pool right? You're drowning, and the lifeguard threw the life preserver, and all you got to do is just grab that life preserver, and, and you'll be saved. What he says is, no, you are, you are dead. A, a, a dead man in the bottom of a pool doesn't grab a life preserver, right? A, a lifeguard needs to grab that dead man out and needs to regenerate him, needs to, 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 to you know, probably knock on their chest or stomach a few times, and needs to blow some wind, some, some fresh life air back into the lungs to revive them, right? To give them new life. That's the picture, Okay, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us when He saves us. He, he gives us new life inside. So He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So just clear, mankind is depraved. No one seeks God. A a spiritually dead person is not inclined towards the light. I, I love it, though, that the next verse in Ephesians begins with two glorious words. Verse 4 says, but God. But God. God takes our sin seriously, but God did something about it. He didn't just live, leave us here to, to languish and to, to die in our sins and, 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 and suffer separation from Him forever in hell. He did something about it. He did something that we could not do to save ourselves, and that is He sent His Son to become human, the, the only righteous man on a rescue mission for us. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That was us. We didn't merit it. But He did it because He's a God of not only justice but grace. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's, that's one of the impediments that keep people from the gospel, is they don't like to admit that they are sinners, that their, their good can't somehow outweigh their bad in, on the scales of God's justice right? Again, we want to be our own Savior, our own God, the captain of our own ship. And so, it takes humility and recognition of this doctrine of depravity in order for us to, to, to come to God with humility and to say, I'm a, I'm a wretched sinner, but I, I believe. I believe that, that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me on the cross, and that He rose from the dead, and my hope is in Him. And then, once you get saved, you even look back and recognize with humility that, you know what? The only reason I called out in faith is He gave it to me as a gift. I, I chose Him because He first chose me. His Spirit first revealed that, 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 that faith to my heart and gave it to me as a gift a, a, a nanosecond before I even consciously believed. So He gets all the glory for my salvation, right? All the gratitude for my salvation. And let me, let me just tell you, this is not anti-evangelistic. This, is, this means that you as a Christian uh, have, the, have the, the responsibility to take this word of truth through which the Spirit changes hearts, and you can take courage knowing that God's going to do His work. You just got to be the vessel and be, be, be faithful to share, and you leave the results to Him. You don't have to try to manipulate anybody into, into His kingdom. You just share the truth. You share the, share the gospel. Tell them John 3, 16 and Romans 5, 8. Um, that we've looked at already this morning, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Romans 6, 23 sums it all up. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus this, uh, our Lord. So we've seen this morning that when Jesus looks into the heart of man, he sees fickleness and depravity. But there's something else that he sees. When Jesus looks into the heart of mankind, I believe that he sees desire. And I'm going to call this God-shaped desire. Some people call this a God-sized hole in the, the heart of man. Now, I want to be careful here that you don't misunderstand me to think that point three contradicts point two, because I don't believe it does. We've already established that because of our depravity, none of us left to ourselves will seek God. But underneath it all, underneath all of the seeking, even sinful seeking of mankind, in every human heart, there is a deep desire that I'll call, I'll just say is God-shaped. What I mean by that is that only God can fulfill it. And it goes back to our creation. The fact that He designed each of us as human beings to have a relationship with Him. Okay, He designed the human soul to be in union and in communion and in fellowship with Him. And of course, we humans try to fill that God-shaped hole, that God-shaped desire with all kinds of things, like wealth, or success, or power, or entertainment, or love, which sadly we often go to the wrong places for that and, 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 and only get, end up, end up in, in a world of pain. 
We human beings are incurable worshipers of the extraordinary, are we not? I mean, what do we like to talk about? To to worship is to ascribe worth. And so when we see something extraordinary, we, we, we are inclined towards that. Well, why? It goes back again to this God-shaped hole in the human heart, right? We were designed to know the extraordinary. And so we ascribe worth to great beauty, to great accomplishment, to creative works, whether they be art or great amazing works of engineering. We are interested in those things. Why? Because we are designed to know the extraordinary creator, God. All of this comes from the image of God within us, warped though it may be by our sinful inclinations. But because we trade worship of the incorruptible God with lesser things, our God-shaped hearts are left disappointed and unfulfilled by these things that we crave. Well, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you are trying to find meaning and happiness, but no matter what you pursue, you find yourself disappointed. So I want to call you to turn. That's what the word repent means, to turn your, your, the orientation of your heart. Turn and look to Jesus. He will give you rivers of living water that will satisfy your parched soul. My, my favorite verse in the entire Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. Through faith, the Christian experiences deep heart satisfaction in God, and that was God's intent for us. As, as Piper puts it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. He, he follows that up by saying, this is perhaps the most important sentence in my theology. Now, the, the sons of Korah wrote some of the Psalms, and, and they wrote about this desire for God poetically. Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 84, 1, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, maybe you're in this room and you are a Christian. Maybe you've gotten distracted. I want to call you to also turn. Turn from trying to fill up that, that, that hole in your heart that only your relationship with God can, can fill uh, for lesser things, right? doesn't mean don't enjoy His blessings, but enjoy Him. Look through all the blessings and ascribe worth to Him. Worship Him with a thankful heart. But don't get distracted by these other things that, that often lure us. Look to Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Well, Jesus does. Jesus can. Jesus looks straight into the heart of man and he sees. He knows. He understands all. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees everything that we have done, everything that we have thought. He knows the motives of our hearts. Christian, let that, let that bring you joy and comfort. He knows you. He knows your sin. He knows the times that you step out in genuine faith. He knows your dreams, and He knows your hopes, 
He knows your failures, and He loves you, and He covers you in His righteousness, such that you may stand before a holy God. We're going to approach our time of communion uh, in a moment. Uh, But 